Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil where... A historian. And a literature scholar. Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Will Sergeant Jaha be okay? Was Treacherous the best tyrant ever? And speaking of, did Triumphant conquer hell? May she never, will she ever return? I've been informed that the position of the king under the mountains is that, since only dwarves own property, only dwarves can be stolen from. I'm afraid that if you insist on getting your family jewels back, my lord, we will have to buy them. Official State Missive from Cygnus of Lies, Ambassador to the Kingdom Under. We are back, my dear listeners, after however long it's been with this prologue nonsense with who even were those deeply attractive characters in it? Catherine's back. Here we see her in command of a legion for the first time exerting and misusing her power on civil servants and making decisions and planning. We get her team together. We see the very, very beginnings of Catherine's story. We've seen the seeds of it. But now she actually is starting off on her story. It just took a whole book to get here. And I respect that so heavily. In this chapter, she deals with a supply line disconnect and plots with her minions to begin their counteroffensive against the rising rebellion, begin their suppression of the insurgency. And somehow these are the protagonists. We start on the 9th of Majwa in the city of Otter. We do, and because we don't really have access to pricey calendars, uh, I'm, I'm left here to speculate a bit. Uh, in the epilogue of Book 1, we get a few dates, uh, the latest of which I believe was the 9th of Maja, which is M-A-W-J-A. This is the 9th of Majwa, M-A-J-W-A. What do we think? Is this a separate month 
where they where the difference between the two months is two letters switched? Is this a a relic of the serialized format, and this is supposed to be taking place at the same time as the epilogue of book one? Because if it's not at the same time, we're looking at at the very least a month after the events of the epilogue of book one, potentially multiple months, because we're not really again. We don't know what the Cali calendar works. I would want to say this must be a typo because who would put two months of similar names next to each other in a calendar? But we live in a world where we have June and July right next to each other, and they're both the JU months. And that's in English where they're actually significantly different from one another compared to languages like German's Uni and Juli where they're a letter apart, it's just messy. And I don't know who July is named after, but I bet that they've been forgotten to history and are hated universally and mm. not arguably one of the most influential human beings in the history of the world. Because I messed that one up, man. Yeah, I I can see that. It just makes it hard to know what the timeline is here. Does we, you know, how far after the epilogue of book one is this happening then probably a month but potentially you know 11 months later if this is the month before so it seems unlikely that it's a year later but we've got a chunk of time uh some amount of time has passed since book one at least six months since the end of the war game since uh the epilogue of book one takes place six months after the final chapter Either way, Catherine is, as she was at the end of the last book, in peak form, dropping in unannounced on a commissioner with all the bells and whistles, all the accoutrement investments of wicked authority, whole team behind her, ready to strike terror into the heart of, thankfully, a man who is not entirely innocent. Yeah, and she rolls up in something that becomes sort of a signature of hers, this early she's got this black cloak that's trailing behind her and uh, we will eventually associate a, a black cloak very heavily with the black queen but for now it's you know it's just her officer's cloak probably just a, a a nice little probably not even an easter egg at this point but it feels like one and with her she has hakram of course he is now going to be by her side with the exception of that one part in the story where he's not going to be. We have Robber, who makes any scene better. And along with those two, she has Ratface. And it makes sense diegetically, because they're going to deal with a supply issue, and he's the supply guy. Uh, Tribune is Latin for guy. He's the supply guy. But seeing Ratface in the field after the War College... I just didn't expect to see that again. He's he's a behind-the-scenes guy until his early and happy retirement. Yeah, it's as if you're on a first read-through, him showing up here and being involved with this feels a little weird because for book one, we see Ratface as the incompetent guy, and so him being useful is interesting. On a reread, we know that he's not incompetent in this field, but... Uh, he still feels pretty behind the scenes, so you know having him be front and center here. Although he doesn't really do much in the scene, he's mostly there for uh, somebody's got to hold the paper and look good doing it, and look great doing it. I remind everyone that despite our 
shared foreknowledge of all which is to occur. We've just finished book one. Catherine Foundling had some ripples going out from her in whispers about a squire and such, but she herself, her simple, mundane, corporeal form, didn't matter to anyone. Even when she went somewhere important, it was in the entourage of Black. But now, she shows up of her own volition, under her own power, leading her own squad. And as soon as she barges into this man's office, Lady Squire, the middle-aged Tagreb greeted me with a pleasant smile. An unexpected pleasure. What can I do for you? She, her accomplishments and her danger go before her. And she is greeted kindly in her rudeness because it's the only option. She is here and she is never going to let go of that horrible status. He was the intramurals champion at her college. She's very famous now. That's how that works, right? We'll drop some more lore about me. I did not do sports in college. Yeah, it's. I mean, she's the head of a legion now. She's got some notoriety. It makes sense, but it's also definitely a stark contrast from the last time we read anything about about Cat outside of you know the war games, the the, the college games. So she's basically the equivalent of the captain of a community soccer league. Editor's right. note: replace soccer with whatever the international term was, rugby. Uh, you're thinking of cricket. Thank you. We all know some quirks about EE's writing, at the very least in this original draft. We have a rich archaeological dig through typos occasionally. Do not detract from anything. Do not minimize the glory of his writing. But they're there. But we also had some stumblings as he really found the perfect voice for the story in this character in the first book. It was a fine book. First book is a good read, fine time. I expect that on a ranking of books, it would be seventh, sixth if it's lucky. Probably because there is much less horror in it than the rest of the books. But sure. now we're in book two, and E.E. E. is in the blossoming of his glory. The blossoming of his literary glory. Catherine has come because the 15th Legion's rations have been waylaid, clearly due to, clearly, likely due to bribe or blackmail. And she's come in under the pretense of just checking on them. And the commissioner lets out a saddened sigh. It seemed almost genuine. You must not have received my missive. And then, the speech tag placed on this, you must not have, re you must not have received my missive, he decided. And I think that verb just carries so much there. He decided. It works on both layers. The superficial, ostensible layer of he decided she didn't receive the missive, which is why she's checking. Haha, his cover story works. But, of course, on the obvious the conversation they're not having layer, it's the ruse he's going with, or the tack, perhaps. That's a tack he's choosing to follow in this diplomatic battle. Hmm. They're checking on it. They're claiming not to know. I'm going to go along with it and squirm out from any responsibility. <sighs> you must not have received my missive, he decided. It is unfortunate, my lady, but the supplies you were supposed to receive were lost in transit. They're halfway to Thalassina by now. Yeah, we, we don't know much about this guy, uh, and we don't learn much about him, but what we do know is he's 
not particularly interested in helping out here for a number of reasons uh, and is also not too caught up with being genuine about his lack of desire to help uh, until he has to be because he's being threatened. But, you know, he's 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 going to squirm through this conversation in I mean, first verbally and then, you know, physically. The verbal portion is short lived. Right. He assures that more supplies will be sent. Catherine asks when. He says, by the end of the month, should there be no trouble on the road? Catherine says, ah, that really is unfortunate. And fool that Rashid is, something like relief flickered through the Tagreb's eyes, but it was short-lived. I reached for my name, and it coiled around my arm almost eagerly, strands of shadow weaving themselves into a spear that I threw at the commissioner without missing a beat. Whatever the time between the war game and this chapter may be, her name has come back under her control. She has no recalcitrant beast left. It's ready to cause chaos in her hands, and she will give it opportunity, I assure you. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that's definitely a big part of who Kat is, and, uh, you know, we we get to, we'll talk about this as we go through this chapter, but this chapter really gives us a peek into the person that Kat becomes when she has the power, the personal power and the influence to back up her bravado and her general willingness to brute force her way through problems. Uh, it, it's book one, Kat is doing her best, learning the world around her and struggling. Book two, she can do whatever she wants and she knows it and pretty much goes hard nonstop. And it, it, it's nice to see. It's nice to see the cat we know and love really coming to the forefront here. And it's also, it's, it's nice to see the people around her reacting to that. We've got this, uh, this Commissioner Rashid who is mm, a hateful little man. Uh, but we also have his guards, who are, at least one of whom, the leader, is a very smart lady. Cat uh, initiates some aggressive diplomacy, some aggressive discussions here. And one of the uh, one of the guards, who is a city guard, not a legionary, it has to be noted here, um, they start to draw swords, and the leader immediately says, hold tells them to get their hands off their weapons and says, we're not fighting legionaries. This is, uh, we're not getting paid enough for this. <laughs> There's no way it is worth dying right here to two legionaries and a person with a name. So, you know, we've got a, we've got one person in this room, one Precy in this room who understands what's going on and is uh, not afraid to, to make her stance known and to try to survive the, the conversation. So good for her. And she does so with, a practical brilliance that I'm kind of surprised Catherine doesn't immediately recruit. Uh, Sergeant Jaha, as she introduces herself, says to Catherine, I'll be frank, ma'am. I'd rather not get involved in this if that's a possibility. She knows who's in charge here, who's in charge in on a number of levels. Mm -hmm. Catherine is, if not within her entirely by the book, raw, for you tabletop gamers out there. Legal rights, definitely in her effective legal rights, and knowing praise, probably within her by the book legal rights, because there's probably something in the book that says it doesn't matter if it's in the book, because right. they wrote the book. Uh, so Jaha recognizes the legal situation, the practical situation, and simply the 
metaphysical situation here. <laughs> She's between a name and a sniveling place. Where should you attempt to find succor? Or at least request salvation? She's allowed out, and I believe it's never heard from again. Which, honestly, is the one thing I hope more than anything is fixed in yonder book two. As the, as the guards depart, uh, there's some there's a little bit of back and forth uh, where cats, where cats, uh, as she likes to call them, minions, uh, banter with her a little bit, talk about her reputation, uh, kind of question what she's saying, and her uh, her response is to say, <laughs> "Don't give me lip in front of the commissioner. It'll make us look unprofessional." And I seem to recall that kind of sentiment coming up now and again from Cat, um, where she is worried about banter in front of enemies or rivals. And that tends to be the one who instigates that kind of nonsense. She tends to be the, the banter person, unless, you know, the, the wretches around her are being treacherous. Um, but being, well, she never has a chance. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but being unprofessional is odd for somebody who strolled in and is throwing a blast of darkness around as a means of, starting the conversation more or less but i guess when you have a name that is a pretty professional thing to do so sure it's her idiom she must banter and decry it every villain needs a hypocrisy and this is the one that is least likely to hoist her by if i may her own petard Mm. but speaking of professional introductions her professional introduction brings a curious point up Rashid moans and gets on his knees after having been shadow-speared with her name, whatever. Grow up. Catherine says that. He was being somewhat melodramatic about this, I felt. I'd hit him with the weakest version of that power I knew. The one Black had taught me punched through plate as well as an actual spear. And it's the weakest version she knows? Like, to reference TTRPGs in the same 10-minute stretch, like a spell of a different level using a different amount of dice or something catherine later on as she assumes various masteries various patronages various powers i know she is special and she gets there but she has such nuanced control over her name later on and right now she seems to have a tiered list of oh well i can do weak shadow spear strong shadow spear or plate busting spear which one should i use today those are my three choices. Yeah, I mean, she's still relatively new to her name by the characters we're familiar with standards. Um, you know, if you can choose strong or the, the, a mental conception of strong or weak is a lot easier to to choose from than a percentile or something like that. So that makes sense. But it is interesting. I, I guess when I read this, I didn't really piece together. I didn't zero in on the word version as much to, to what you're talking about, but that, that does seem to be what this is implying. That's interesting. Um, the, the level of control she has over her name specifically, but various types of power, uh, we definitely want to pay attention to to see how that develops organically over the story or it, it fits and starts and jumps at, depending on where we are. And as her source of power changes frequently uh because uh, you know there are times where she has massive raw power and not as much fine control or times where she has basically infinite fine control so it's it's 
cool to see at this point how she has neither because she's the squire. I do have a thought, having now thought more. Okay, okay. Like all insolid human beings, I have occasionally dabbled at a piano when I am near one and am permitted to play. But I have not really had formal training. I can't play piano. I've I've just dabbled. Sure. But when I'm at a real piano or a good synthetic artificial uh what would they call that faux piano the kind where the amount of pressure or not pressure the amount of force you apply with the hammer or pretend hammer affects the noise level i am not a pianist i don't have that fine digital control and mostly i can manage loud or middle or maybe soft and sometimes the wrong one comes out and I'm sure I could develop it, but you know, Catherine having versions this early on in a skill, I believe it. Her lack of control is no problem though, because she does have control enough to put the commissioner in his place, which is on a very clean floor as it happens. He attempts to reassert his position, which is a poor choice when you, when you, you may remember my dear audience, have a position below that of the person trying to put you in your place. But he says, you you dare assault a duly appointed official of the tower? Urgh. And Catherine just chats with him, as is, again, her idiom, about how, before he left, her teacher delivered a ridiculously large pile of papers at the 15th headquarters. Among those was a form called the Nihilus Report. And it's a cool piece of paper. It is. It's a, a document that you have to fill out in triplicate to... Uh kill off a bureaucrat uh and this feels like the kind of thing that cat would joke about to a callowin to make a threat or to bluff about but when she says the nihilist report the commissioner is nervous because it is an actual form and i i you know there's not much to say here it's extremely pricey it makes perfect sense but it's cool uh it's you know it's not surprising in the slightest but it's a nice callback or it connects nicely it fits in nicely with what we learned about the shadow guilds in book one uh where they you know the in lore the assassins and thieves guilds they were allowed to kill public officials if that assassination was vetted by the empire first by the dread empire it makes perfect sense they were willing to let callowans do that if it got vetted and approved Sure, Pracy can do it too. You know, there's there's a nice paper trail everywhere you go for these for assassinations. It's it's very fun, very Pracy. Catherine continues to poke and prod and banter her way through the conversation, but she already is aware of the tools in her toolbox. She's already the Catherine we later we later knew and learned to love, and thus now earlier already know and love. Right. Rereads are fun temporally, but uh. She tells us the continued patronizing slights were keeping him off balance, and I needed him that way if he was going to buy what I was selling. It's not merely a character flaw of hers, though it is a character flaw. I'm not, I'm not letting her off the hook. Sure. She's Catherine Fowling. She has a bundle of flaws, and I love her. You know what I like? What do you like? I like sayings. I like turns of phrase. Catherine uses one here. She talks about how she claims to have the lone swordsman's truth-telling trick, 
But she does not. She says Black wasn't able to replicate it, but he's good enough at reading people that it made no real difference. And then she says she wasn't there yet, but she could manage to even out she could manage to even it out by, quote, lying like a mercantist chariot salesman. I like that turn of phrase. It's lying a nice like one. a mercantist chariot salesman. It's it's one of those phrases that feels like a, a direct port of a real world phrase into the into the language of the setting and it's great it it's cute it's fun it gives you a little bit of insight into what's going on with mercantus and also that chariots are being sold by individuals and not just made for the extremely rich at this point which is interesting in a faux medieval setting so you know it's fun though perhaps there is no chariot to receive if you think there is i'd like to sell you a bridge you know what i like in a story what do you like in a story Fantasy language, especially when it comes back a second time. And we get that here. Catherine finds out that it was bribery, not blackmail, which made Rashid lose the supplies. And she expresses disappointment because she could have at least sympathized with blackmail. And he sneers, I would have done it for free, Uchafe. And you may recall that Uchafe means filth in Mthethwa. And I think that's beautiful. Now... Remind me of the person who first called Cat Uchafe? It was in episode 22, chapter 21, Fall. It's one of Eris's entourage. Unonti, I think. Though I think it's interesting because Catherine is called Uchafe mm-hmm. and says, you ever notice how it's always the Tagreb who go for racial slurs? Which is interesting, only insofar as this Tagreb official is speaking to her using some language. It's unclear what language is being spoken here. But Uchafe, which is a word not rendered in English for us here, is a word in Mthethwa, rather than Tagrebi. Though it is the Tagreb, says Catherine, who always goes for racial slurs. And that's the problem with that race, is how racist they are. Remember that. Yeah. Catherine. There's no greater point here. I'm just curious about the intersection of language. There will be another point on this in in due course. Give me five minutes, maybe? Nice, I look forward to it. And you know way, what Robert can look forward to? <laughs> uh, a little bit of torture, I guess. Uh, we get a nice scene here, and by nice I do mean calm, wholesome, heartwarming. Cat uh, threatens a little bit of torture to get information out of, uh, or to get a signature out of, a seal out of uh, Commissioner Rashid here, and he sort of laughs it off, laughs off the implicit threat with Oh, you don't have it in you. You won't be able to torture me. And uh, Kat says, uh, she delivers the line that she doesn't do torture. Even now, I think it's barbaric. And she gets up to leave and says, allow me to introduce Captain Robber. He's a horrible green barbarian. Excellent little line. An excellent way to threaten torture without doing it yourself. Fantastic little wink to Robber. He's loving every moment of this. I mean, it says he enjoys theatrics like this to a thoroughly unhealthy degree. He thanks her for the compliment. It's it's a great scene with our favorite goblin. Our favorite goblin, who apparently keeps a jar full of eyeballs in his knapsack. And even Catherine is unsure and afraid to ask whose they are. Yeah, and uh, this gives us a little uh, un- a continued scene with some of our, our favorite people in the story. Because uh, Robert immediately responds to... <laughs> How you know? How do you know that? And realizes, of course, it was Hawkram because Hawkram is 
the gossip of the 15th and he uh he's completely unperturbed by the accusation that he's been gossiping behind robber's back and just more or less <laughs> he he admits i don't get why people keep telling me things and honestly these people know who hawkham is why would you tell him anything why would anybody tell him anything <laughs> it all gets out why wouldn't you call the big why wouldn't you tell the big cuddly killing machine all of your secrets i don't think i could resist telling hawkham anything that came up i trust him inadvisably and implicitly i yeah i guess if i had a jar full of eyeballs i would probably tell hawkham that's fair i think i've done very well at holding to my standards of keeping any thought even tinged with the political far away from this public facing podcast mm-hmm, for sure but a little known secret about me is that i do think that maybe the working class isn't bad a bold stance in my country but <laughs> oh gosh Catherine gets prepared to take her leave uh everyone to take their leave and to leave robber to she prepares to take her leave and to leave robert to it but advises him not to make too much of a mess. Quote, I don't know what they pay the cleaning staff around here, but it's definitely not enough to deal with that. And Catherine Foundling is a working class hero, an unproblematic fave. Even even as she rises through the ranks and is one of the more important people in the world by virtue of being one of the few with a name, yeah, she's still looking out for the little guy. And somehow she's a villain. I this It makes no sense. But... Uh, it doesn't matter because she's, in fact, bluffing about having Robert torture a guy. Uh, Howard? Yeah. <laughs> she knew that he, would, uh, he wouldn't call her on it because Robert is terrifying. But uh, she says to us, the reader, directly, I had no real intention of having anyone tortured. So if he'd called that bluff, I would have had to take another angle. And I think here we have a, a, a bit of an early instance of one of Kat's signature moves, maybe even her signature move, her signature play in a situation. It's, it's bluffing a willingness or an ability to do things that she can't or won't. Um, she's, you know, a very powerful individual as we talked about already, but she's always acting as though she has more power than she actually does, which is a powerful move. It's a strong move if it works. And, it tends to for Kat. Uh, people don't usually call her on it because uh, she's so very good at it. And I think some of that, some of that excellence at bluffing, at acting above her station, power-wise, not hierarchy-wise, uh, not you know like socially. Although I guess she does that too. Um, is that she one has basically no shame. <laughs> she's she's willing to just offer these bald-faced lies. These hey. I'm just going to tell you I'm capable of doing this thing, even if it doesn't make sense. And also that she has no regard for her well-being, that she's willing to roll up on people who are a massive threat to her body, to her person, and just sort of stand there in the face of, you know, cataphracts charging down at her and with nothing to protect her except a line she's drawn in the on the ground. It's It's that kind of thing that just, it's extremely... Catherine, and eh, the stakes here are pretty low, but she's starting to build that that move, that that repertoire of just not using the power that she has 
but acting like she can use more than she does. And uh, yeah, it's it's an impressive thing to do, and it's a it's a nice edge that she walks incredibly well. And it really is a nice edge because a fundamental piece of this signature move is that it must play right up to the brink. And if ever her opponent were to take but a step further, it would unravel quite possibly catastrophically. Here, I think she could recover the situation. Oh, yeah. Because at the end of the day, she does have him entirely in her power, and she could go back to the torture. I mean, Robber is there. But the cataphract charge, if they had just gone a couple of gallops further, mm -hmm. then our gal would be lopped the head off of her. That's gallop that twice. Was, that was torturous. <laughs> it felt that way to me too, and I get to share it. Unbelievable. I I think we may have peaked with that one. That was that was something else. Well, like any spineless and ultimately unfunny comedian, I'll go from weak humor to racial epithets. Nice. Rashid stamps her form and says, just get out, you smug waller spawn. You have what you want. I remind you, this is a pejorative term for the orcs of the Duchy of Daina. And Catherine is upset, understandably, but in a really cool, I'm powerful and I will make you hurt way, which is normally a bad thing, but it's anti-racism, so now I'm in favor. Mm -hmm. She says, twice you've used a racial epithet while referring to me. I like to think I'm a patient woman, Rashid. Ratface snorted loudly, always betrayed. But I only have so much tolerance for that kind of tomfoolery. Twice he's called her a racial epithet. Wallerspawn? Sure, yeah, great. Or rather, sure, yeah, terrible. Right. But the other one, I realized here, is Uchafe, which means filth. Because after he uses the word Uchafe, Catherine says, and... I noted on this podcast, dear listener, why didn't you catch this? You ever notice how it's always the Tagreb who go for the racial slurs? And I'm just fascinated by this new dimension of Uchafe. I thought it was merely filth, which can be used in a racially charged way, sure. Just, you know, put that, insert ethnic group, filth, and boom, you've racialized the term. But filth itself... I use the word on a daily basis when I'm around my nephew because he is a child and I need to inform him often that things are filthy or he is filthy and that must be cleansed. But when we are introduced to Uchafe, it's in chapter 21, fall. This is the banquet and this is right after Catherine breaks a finger. Notice the parallel here. Catherine says, sometimes I see something particularly breakable and I just can't help myself. I shrugged, noting the girl in question was still cradling her finger and glaring at me. Talk like that will cost you your tongue, Uchafe, the boy snarled. It meant filth in Mthethwa. I ignored him anyway. We had no mention of it being a racial epithet. Now we do. We, we're, we're building our understanding of one particularly unpleasant corner of Mthethwa. And this brings me joy. Speaking of single words that excite me. What's the very next word out of Catherine's mouth? It looks like it might just be the sort of formal military term for a, a administrator. I don't know why that's so exciting for you. Adjutant? Well, the thing 
about the word adjutant applied to Hakram is, uh, is, is I think they work real well together. And this is the first time that we see his title. He has a title. A title, a, a role within Catherine's entourage, if you will. Yeah, a role. He breaks two of that man's fingers. And Catherine's justification for ordering this uh, digital assault is ideal. She says, it's not personal anyhow. What I'm doing is teaching the imperial bureaucracy to mind its tongue around me. I don't expect you to stop being racist. I'm not that presumptuous. But I do expect you to be polite. I think you'll remember that, should we ever meet again. And there's a big hubbub, at least in the United States of America these days, about critical race theory, which is the mere acknowledgement that there are institutional aspects to racialization and the oppression of racialized groups. Ooh, very terribly controversial. But what we see from Catherine is a sort of reapplied critical race theory, where she critically wounds anyone who's being racist to affect institutional change. And I think we can all agree, it wouldn't be too sad to see a little more of that in the world. Yeah, Kat the, Kat's, Kat's taking it down just one individual at a time. She's the, the making people be less, or making society be less racist isn't like her overarching goal, which we sort of talked about before. It's not like a driving force of what she's doing. But if she comes across it, she's going to use her power to move a couple things in the right direction. And I respect that a lot. It, she's, she's, doing, she's doing good for herself. Few of us are cool enough to make anti-racism our primary motivator, but you can sprinkle that in. It's like sure. salt or garlic. You should at least add double. <laughs> for sure. And some of you are thinking, you can't do that with salt. And yes, I can. And some of you are thinking you can't do that with garlic. And I'd like to invite you to stop listening to this podcast. Wow. I mean, I guess I can't disagree, but wow. On her way out, we get a dramatic whirl of the cloak as she she departs the commissioner's office. She gets the seal she's looking for, and they return to the 15th headquarters. Um, and we get a little bit of a reason why they have to travel to get there. It's outside of the city because it is illegal in uh, in place for a legion to be posted inside the capital. I don't have a lot to say on this, except that that's a, a nice little reference, uh, analog to ancient Rome, where uh, following some particularly rough civil wars, uh, the, the Roman legions were also not As allowed. As opposed to the other kind of civil war. It, I said particularly rough, not... Uh, there was a modifier on there. Cut me some slack. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she, the, the, the Romans also had a, a, a law against legionaries being posted inside of Rome itself. One that was broken frequently at need, but it was there. And so, you know, all of the, the meats and analogs to Rome, a couple of them, with all the meats and analogs to Rome, it's cool to see some of them just be background grounds details to the legions and so this is one of those i'm sure this is a long-standing prohibition but what do you want to bet that that is one of black's primary personal projects to see that nonsense abolished so that he can keep the high seats more well in check when they visit the tower i was also yeah i i had that same thought that this d definitely seems like a not black thing because the 
in the previous section, I had you know something similar where the uh, Commissioner Rashid is attached to the government, but not attached to the legions, despite being a supplier for the legions. It gives a little bit more power to the uh, civilian government over the the military, and so that there are a couple relics of the past where you've got the the Black Knight or the uh, the various dread emperors and empresses being concerned about the legions or uh, trying to play off each other rather than this absurd loyalty between uh, Amadeus and uh, uh, militia. So it, it's. Some of these relics of, uh, of Prace past are showing up, and yeah, I think, like you said, they're just not a priority for Black, probably, but you expect that were he to rule forever, a lot of these would be stripped away with time. But some things will never be stripped away with time, and one of those are the stories, the memes, if you will. And one of the greatest ones, pun intended, you will see, is a titular pattern we haven't seen before this point, I believe. Notice. Catherine, notice. In a discussion they're having about various dread tyrants, here about dread emperor treacherous, as Catherine wonders why he was so popular, she says, I don't recall him actually accomplishing anything. And after something like the war of 13 tyrants and one, there must have been a lot of rebuilding to do. And one. There's always and one. Seven and one. Thirteen and one. You've always got to have a number and one. Basic arithmetic is the foundation of the stories of this society, <laughs> and I love it. Yeah, it's, it's a fun naming. I, wanna, I, I, I was about to call it a naming convention, but it's definitely got more weight than just the way we talk about numbers. It, it's a fun convention. I, I really do like it and It's when it shows up. Speaking of Foundations of Stories, editor's note, play the bard sting here. Oh, nice. Hockram replies, it's the same reason Westerners are fond of bards. He was hilariously ineffective. Moving on. We get a little bit more information about Treacherous here. Uh, Ratface tells us that he managed to betray a villain called the Betrayer and goes on to say that he only had one trick, but he was great at it. And I love these little references to stories of the past. They're so fascinating to me. I'd love to see a side project or something uh, EE writing about, even just this specific instance. This guy named himself Treacherous. He's his, not his role, but his personal name that he chose for himself, basically. His, His official royal name is Treacherous. And he still manages to trick people. He still manages to betray people. People go in knowing what this guy's all about and still get betrayed by him. That's phenomenal. I, I would love to read about how this guy manages that. That's he's he's pulling one over on everybody he meets constantly. That's incredible. I I'm <laughs> I just want to know more. <laughs> we do get a little more though. We get a, a a one of the an anecdote from his life or from directly after his life, I guess. Well, the setup must have been during his life, surely. Our beloved Robert says, You've got to respect that kind of an exit, though. I mean, poisoning himself and pinning it on over a hundred different people? Man knew how to leave the stage. And if I do not go out in the same fashion, then my life amounts to nothing. It's a, <laughs> it's a powerful way to go, for sure. Also, to earn the respect of Robert, wow. So, treacherous... Catherine, 
and Pickler. Yeah, that's uh, uh, and Hawkram, the honorary goblin. Uh, we get Catherine is thinking of uh, Treacherous here as a folk hero, a folk figure, definitely not a hero. Catherine is thinking of uh, of Treacherous as sort of a folk figure here, and uh, you know says that every nation has those, of course. Uh, and she says, in Callow, the most popular is probably Elizabeth Alden, the Queen of Blades, and says uh, this Queen of Blades had so many stories tacked on to her name that it was chronologically impossible for her to have lived through all of them. I, we, we don't necessarily know if Queen of Blades is a role, but uh, at least Callow and royalty, the queen's, like, Talon royalty are named, so she probably was, at least. But the, the important thing here is, I'm, this got me thinking, at least. Do names, do roles get more powerful over time and more limited, more restricted in what they can do? Because as every new bearer of the mantle accomplishes new things within the story that their name is tied to... That's another story, another instance, another deepening of the groove in creation for this name. It's more weight to back up your movements, more weight to back up your efforts, but it's also more, it's also a, you know, a deeper groove to climb out of if you want to change the story. So if you are the first person with a name when they st- are very early, were you, did it not grant as much power as, say, you know, a, a millennia down the line. I, I don't know. Just, if you have more success to lean into, are you able to do more with that? Or basically, does Clarnia have power creep? Considering how powerful we've seen first of their names to be, I feel inclined to doubt it. Though I can only think of two off the top of my head being three off the top of my head, in fact. I believe Cat to be the first warden. Mm-hmm. I believe Maleficent to be the first Dread Empress, the first Dread Tyrant, and she's also the second or third most successful, perhaps the most successful, since only her empire is the one that actually lasted. Triumphants fell with her, and Militia lost the Dread Empire possibly forever, despite her great success for so long. Right. But Warden was mighty. Maleficent was mighty. And do you know who else I think is the first of their name? Who's that? The Intercessor. And also unusually limited, but unusually limitless. Now, we have a couple, a, a, a few things here. Um, the Intercessors, depending on how you look at it, either the first of her name or just this one in a long line of people who have the name. But Very fair. Their personality is just subsumed by the power of the name. Also, come on, the intercessor is a special case, and you know it. Um, also, what about the dead king? I was just about he's to mention special. Well. Yeah, and Spinnock. and so a couple of things. I do those these names that you're bringing up as yeah, they're special cases. The intercessor is a special case. I, I, there's no way to argue that. De- the dead king. Uh, yep, first of his name, and also uniquely situated and powerful compared to basically anyone else. He's absurdly powerful at a personal level and his name helps with that, but he's created his own story and has lasted forever. He's, I think he's a special case. I'm not trying to like discount your entire argument by saying, ah, they're all special cases because Maleficent, fair point. Uh, that That's a fair one. 
Cat being the warden, Cat has an absurd level of power without her name beforehand, and her name clarifies that power and focuses it. I don't know that being the warden is the even the bulk of Cat's personal power at that stage. And given that she is in a world where it's diegetically significant that outside of the world, perhaps, she is the protagonist, therefore, within the world, she must be mighty. There's right. a there's a whole lot going on there. It is like Undertale levels of meta story, and really, end of sentence. But I, so I, I don't know that Cat's necessarily a special case. She is the protagonist, so that complicates things a little bit. She is powerful, but we also don't know how much more powerful future wardens are. You know, uh, we only see the first one, so maybe the next warden, or maybe thirty wardens down the line, Cat's warden well of power seems insignificant you know uh there's a better story down the line or they're drawing on the the weight that cat has created the weight the, the weight of influence that cat has initiated that's 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 just what i'm wondering is being able to draw on more stories does that offer more ability to affect the world you know with more restrictions it's it's only speculation, I think. I don't think we ever, ever get an explicit answer here, but it was just something I was thinking of in reading this little bit about uh, Alden and uh, Treacherous. So. Well, speaking of some of the greatest among the named, we do see, Catherine, in talking about folk heroes, get onto <laughs> the subject of Dread Empress Triumphant. May she never return. And we return to the cultural trait of the Praesi not really having prayers, they're not really being organized worship of the hell gods. And this isn't as impossible as it may at first appear, because while cults occasionally pop up, the tower makes a point of stomping those out. Not because of religious intolerance, of course, don't worry. <laughs> but be <laughs> because they had a history of breaking the imperial restrictions on human sacrifice. Not on blood magic or anything, that's fine, but human sacrifice. If you're killing someone, just make sure you use every piece of their life force. Yeah, uh, they didn't fill out the proper forms if they're in a cult. That's the real issue. At this point, yeah. <laughs> but it's this little bit is interesting too because Hawkroom is and Ratface are explaining why you know there's the may she never return for for triumphant and Hawkroom says it's basically a prayer. It's a petition to the gods below to. <laughs> keep her in the hells and not let her come back to creation which on the surface seems sensible if she came back she could do anything she's triumphant she's one of the most successful individuals during her life that we hear about in this entire story filled with people who are famous for all of history for their individual stories that they create um but am i wrong in thinking it's a little odd that the Praesi don't want her back? If she showed back up and took control of Praise, wouldn't Praise just become the dominant power again in all of Kalernia? I From a Praesi perspective, from you know Ratface's perspective, or even from Hawkram's perspective, people embedded in the, the Praesi military, why are they opposed to that so strongly? Where were the Praesi people left after Triumphant's reign? The nation, the, pardon, the state waxed. But just based on concepts of cartoon evil, I don't think I'd want to be 
a legionary in that legion of terror. I think I want to be a legionary in any legion of terror, but black seems like the best one ever, and triumphant seems like probably the worst to be part of. Uh, you might be right, but if she's fully successful, maybe they'd be okay. It's only after the downfall that things get really bad, and this time maybe she'll usurp uh, militia and we'll get black working for triumphant. That's an unbeatable pair, I'm sure. Actually, no, that would go the other way. They'd get in each other's way. They would have vastly different ideas about how to do things, both incredibly effective, but they'd be in conflict the entire time. I'm grateful that I have not interacted with the fan fiction of this world at all, because I'm sure there are so many of those stories that investigate that very question. And I don't think I want to know. <laughs> Fair. But uh, Kat, after hearing this, is a little concerned about the potential, the hypothetical return of Triumphant. She asks, is that considered likely? And Robert finds that amusing. You tell me, boss. When she croaked, pardon, when she croaked it, several of her legions went down with her. Odds are they ended up in the same place. The old girl conquered more with less. And Catherine is nonplussed, perhaps, because I think the word huh as an entire follow-up sentence encapsulates nonplussed, nonplussedness, non, nonplusivity very well. There it is. But this doesn't shock her outright because, frankly, she's heard that story before. Yeah, she, uh, she says there was, is a precedent for a mortal quote-unquote, taking over one of the Hells, and references the Dead King, uh, which is wild on, the, on a reread to get a reference to his special little personal Hell, not meaning that in the you know traditional sense of the phrase, but rather... His little slice of heaven, his own right. personal Hell. <laughs> his, his, little, his little slice of Hell. Uh, <laughs> uh, to see that reference at the very beginning of book two is is pretty cool I, I i love when on the reread which is a big portion of why you know why we're doing this is to find these little details that on a first read through are just like oh that's interesting i wonder what that's about and on a second read through are hints big big suggestions at things to come it's 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 very cool we uh following this cat starts to get back into her her uh legion camp um and thinks through the fact that a good percentage of her legion uh, is made up of Kalowans. And uh, this was done by Black, and Kat isn't exactly sure why. Um, first of all, he didn't tell her. And second of all, there's the, uh, the fact that she mentions here that he never did anything without half a dozen reasons, most of them known only to himself. Um, she says, I thought it was a favor at first, basically, but uh, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, and I don't know, I was, as I was reading this, I thought it might be worth discussing why Black did this, if, you know, if he does have a half dozen reasons for doing it. I'm wondering what, if we can come up with maybe what those reasons are, uh, or guess at a few of them at least, because the consequences, the, the conflict here, the tension, are, pretty easy to guess and obviously black would have known that that was going to happen um so what what made it worth it to to split cat's legion between halloween criminals and normal pricey recruits catherine foundling is a Callowan, but 
she is a turncoat traitor Callowin. But she's a Callowin who ends up leading Callowins. And with the power of a story behind it, perhaps that will more effectively tie Callow into the Legions of Terror and to the Dread Empire. But the Legions of Terror are the microcosm of the Dread Empire, which Black seeks most directly to cultivate in order to then imprint it on the Empire at large. Theory one. That I mean, that, that does seem like a pretty easy explanation for it, but it, it almost seems too, I don't know, too easy, too, too limited in scope. I, I, the, I imagine there's some kind of um, lesson in this for Kat or some way for Kat to, be, uh, to grow from this, because otherwise you could stick uh, the Callowin criminals in with any old Callowin. You know, like, what, why is Kat involved here? She's got a name. She's got a matter for this reason more than just the the what's going on in Callow. Um, as we learn next chapter, maybe not learn. As we discuss a bit more next chapter, Black is concerned with legacy uh, a fair bit when it comes to Cat. Um, so he's he's definitely worried about her side of things, and having her countrymen be in her legion almost seems like it would pull her away from Prace, but that may be that may be the part of the point. I was about to say the point, but part of the point in trying to for in Kat's mind keep keep Callow as relevant to her so that when she ascends to being the basically the lieutenant of <laughs> the the Empress or potentially Emperor at that point of the Dread Empire that she still identifies enough as Callowin to really draw those together from that point? Is he is he playing that long of a game? I, I don't know. He's I, actively cultivating Catherine's name right now. And he needs a name that's prepared for war and struggle, which he's doing well with. But if she's to continue his legacy, she also needs to be a crafter of and a keeper of peace. Mm. And by giving her a legion guaranteed to have a degree of infighting without actively and actually poisoning that well. He better prepares her nominal growth for the creation of stability, which is his ultimate project. And we see a payoff in spades in the epilogues. Sure. I mean, that that's fair. Yeah. Theory three. I have to say there's probably five or six other theories that make sense that we just cannot be privy to there's probably minor political things you know even at the level of like mazes or his replacement that level of things where getting rid of certain criminals earned a favor over here and you know there's probably a bunch of things going on behind the scenes that just do not relate to the story at large that we are reading uh but that are you know moderately important to the black knight and if you see any of these reasons minor hidden or otherwise feel free to let us know write into us at the long price at gmail.com find our twitter at the long price or you know hit us up wherever you found this we we post on the reddit we tweet on the incendiary far-right platform we are on the discord hit us up so Catherine can't figure out black's motivations but she also can't be honest with herself She'd expect a conflict to come, she tells us, from more conservative Soninke and Tagreb elements. Quote, But my fellow Callowans had turned out just as bad. 
Catherine Foundling has discovered that Callowins can be racist against the Precy. Yep. Yep. I, I'm concerned she forgot about the conquest, if nothing else. And also that she forgot about literally the entirety of Callowin and Precy history being one of fighting each other. Did Do you think she forgot about that? I mean, she's met a nice orc, so mm, that was probably yeah. all overblown. Sure, true, true. She's probably abandoned that whole minor subplot. All that nationalism, gone. Right, She's right. a good pricey citizen. Exactly. Um, we do, we get a little, uh, a first hint towards one of the more, we get a first hint towards an interesting development that happens later on in the Fey saga, I'm calling it now, apparently. Um, she says, the core of my Callowin recruits was made up of thieves and murderers who had avoided the noose by quote-unquote, volunteering for service. And few of them were actually pleased to be here. Uh, for now, that just seems like a, yep, Cat gets a bad legion. Uh, but later on, this core becomes a very important crew. That's a military term, right? Within a subdivision of the army as a crew. Uh, <laughs> uh, You're thinking the, of the Navy. Oh, sorry. Uh, you know, we get the, the Gallowborn, Cat's personal bodyguard her equivalent to the blackguards that's not the term the blackguards um and you know seeing seeing where they came from seeing them these people referenced back here at the very beginning of book two it's cool right now none of them can be promoted up to any special position all of the officers above the rank of sergeant are pracy pracy soninke to grabby orc goblin maybe Calwins are sergeant or below, and of course they are because the only Calwins who go through the war college are Jorah, and they don't serve in the legions afterwards. They're the statistically least participatory orcs in the world. She couldn't just appoint a legionary from the ranks to lieutenantship just for being Calwin when she had qualified candidates from other backgrounds available to her, and thankfully. They're all in the army together, so they're all going to get the opportunity. There might be a chance for a field promotion, unfortunate as that is. But Catherine's run into a fundamental conundrum of affirmative action policies, where in a world where there are racialized divisions, in this case, Callowins versus everyone who's had the opportunity and positioning, and in this case, cultural motivation to go to the war college, there are going to be groups that haven't had the opportunity to, put, to become qualified, but because of the lack of opportunity, they aren't able to be given the chance to be qualified on the same level because they haven't gotten qualified because it's been taken from them or prevented from them or, or, or. And Catherine's solution to the conundrum of building equality in a state of unequal origins is well some people will die and then we'll fill it up and that's just a cutting of the gordian knot in a nastily practical way but this is the nastily practical guide to evil listen i hate this so much because when you said and before you had even said that is my mind immediately said hey this is like the gordian knot so you know it's a pretty common phrase but like we're right there. I don't know who Gordon is, but his knot is famous. 
Catherine's next words are, we'll see if any distinguish themselves, any Callowans, enough to warrant a rise up the ranks. And I can think of one Callowan who continually accidentally distinguishes herself enough to rise up the ranks time and again, yea, even unto nobility. Accidentally? She's the fox. She's, it's, it's an uncanny ability to make the right call in the face of all encouragement to the contrary. I love her. Oh, yeah. Among others, General Abigail is a truly towering figure, but she is not the only towering woman in this chapter. In fact, she's not even in this chapter. No, she's not. Uh, we, <laughs> we I'm get not to... sure she's in this book. We'll have to find out. Uh, no, she doesn't get mentioned until... She doesn't get mentioned by name until uh, the the big climactic fight against uh, against Ubla. So we've got a while. Um, but yeah, uh, Kat rolls up to the where there's a, a bit of a senior officer meeting for the Legion. So we start to see some familiar faces. Juniper's there. Um, a couple other people are there. But we also get introduced to somebody who's a moderately important person throughout uh, a good portion of the story. Never a main character, never even a secondary character, really. Um, but she shows up and does some cool things and is mostly important in how Kat grapples with her perspective on this person. Uh, it's Commander Hune. Oh, no, she's done grappling ogres. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, but Commander Hune is here. Uh, you know, it's the it's Ka- it's Catherine's ogre commander within the the 15th. But there's another commander. An ogre commander seems like a liability just in that they're a big target. But also, how great would it be to have someone tall and thundering to yell orders to people? Obvious where it's coming from. Obvious who's doing it. Ah, that's the person with authority. Also somebody who can just, like, pick up and throw people if they're causing problems, including, you know, enemy soldiers. And that's why I always vote for the tallest candidates. Smart. But there are some, uh, there are some other familiar faces here in this officer's meeting. Yes. Uh, and so we have Commander Hune. We have Juniper, who has been given her promised role. We have Hakram. We have Commander Nock, who sends a cheerful grin Catherine's way and pulls a little prank on Juniper. If you're not reading along, you'll have to to find out what that was. <laughs> but we also have Staff Tribune Aisha Bishara. Or uh, rather... If the Orc Commander, Nock, was my creature, though, then there was no denying that Staff Tribune Aisha Bishara was Juniper's. Getting the Tagreb former captain on her staff had been, so far, the only favor my legate had asked of me. But already, look at them. She's calling for each other. By, they're, she, mm-hmm. She's asking for her by name. She wants to work with her. They want to hang out, talk about killing people, just yeah. girl things yeah, together. Contemplating war crimes together, <laughs> late into the night, lying on their stomachs, hands in fists under their chin, legs kicking in the air. Oh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Who do you want to kill? No, I don't know. What front do you want to lead? They kiss at one point. That's why it's fun. Oh, okay. They kiss at many, many points. Thank you for bringing me in on the joke. They're gal pals. <laughs> Truly roommates. This was recorded in Pride Month, everyone. Uh, yeah, I guess it was, huh? Oh, that's some top-tier stuff right there. Chatting about 
our favorite lesbian couple in the in the story. Exactly. Are they our favorite? Probably, right? I think so. Though, like, like lesbian Cap- couple is a bit of a uh, racer, unless Aisha doesn't identify with doesn't have an identity that includes their past relationship with Ratface in that way. Sure. But, and, you know, for Ratface, I mean, <laughs> I may be a man, but I think I'd be willing to swing that way for Ratface. He is a cutie. And also, we learn a pretty useful one for the 15th. Uh, we get just sort of a little throwaway line where he says we'll get our, our rations, you know, the whole purpose of the first half of this chapter, uh, by nightfall. And then he continues with sort of a, a you, you get the feeling of this casual, oh, and here's what's going on. He says, I appear to have misremembered the actual number of soldiers in the 15th, so we'll end up with some surplus. Of course, Kat takes this opportunity to refer to him not as my talented supply tribune or our you know, heroic quartermaster, but rather as the handsome Tugreb who was our supply tribune. Because... It's Ratface, and anytime he does anything, you have to comment on how unbelievably hot he is. I mean, you say that, and it's true, but it's not really a, I don't know, pronounced case in this situation, because mad himbo energy right here. <laughs> Head empty, no thoughts, cute face. And a backpack full of food for the army. Get me a himbo like that. Honestly. we get. I was uh, about to say that I don't think the story has any herbos, but then I remembered Indrani, so I take back everything. Uh, Indrani, maybe she's—I would say she's borderline. Do you not remember the White Knight's best friend, the champion? A truly insightful and cunning individual. Yeah, but like <laughs> the presentation she has. Come on now. She is very attractive to me. I admit it. <laughs> uh. We get a little bit of a a continued discussion about the details of the march. um, And then uh, Kat is concerned about something we find out about right here. She's got a summons to the tower. She's got to head up and talk to talk to militia um, and a nice private meeting uh, tonight. And Kat's a little concerned about (laughs) what she's going to wear to this meeting. Uh, She wants to wear armor because she doesn't own a dress. And so she asks Aisha, the politician of the crew, who, yeah, you can wear armor, you're the squire, and then goes on to say, you're a little young for the Empress's usual tastes anyhow. And good that the Empress is working for adults, but weird that that's where Aisha went. Like, I don't know. Definitely uh, (laughs) an interesting choice to immediately go for that angle in the response. A very concerning immediacy, unless there's maybe there is a uh, hurtful and wrong stereotype about Callowin women, or they're always trying to get in, but Militia's too cunning for that. She wouldn't take any dirty Callowins, or but yeah. otherwise, uh, this is not too long after Nefarious, so right. But still, we, this this goes into a little discussion on the. Uh... Imperial Seraglio, which we find out is a political institution as much as it is, or more than it is, a, a harem situation. Um, and Harem? I hardly know them. Uh, and that'll do it for this podcast forever.
Uh, no, but Cat uh, uh, is a little taken aback by this. She assumed it was more of a uh, a harem than anything. And Ratface backs her up on this a little bit. He says, you know, traditionally, yes, it's a political thing, but we can't forget Nefarious. And he wasn't the first to use the uh, the Seraglio for Nefarious. What we would consider traditional purposes. Right, for traditional purposes. And uh, it's there are a couple things that come from this. First of all, Aisha says to keep your personal politics out of this. And she says it harshly. Uh, because uh, that Emperor Nefarious turned his Seraglio into some sort of sordid sex dungeon was a sign he'd lost the ability to rule. And he paid for it with his life. I don't want to get too controversial here, but I don't feel like being upset that a ruler is taking advantage of their position of power to have a sordid sex dungeon is a particularly personal political stance so much as just a general distaste with a gross power imbalance. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Saying keep your personal politics out of this. Uh, it seems as though there's Aisha's, if not defending fully Nefarious's actions, sort of doing some base-level apologetics for the Emperor being able to do gross things generally. I don't know, it's, it's a weird moment. It also could just be, hey, shut up, X, I don't want to hear you talk, <laughs> because there's definitely some history there. Consider, also, though, her background. Mm-hmm. She does come from a... She is an imperial institution, and therefore has a vested interest and a propagandistic upbringing in defense of it. That's fair, but still. Oh yeah, but still. (laughs) Uh, We also get her referring to Ratface as Hassan. So, you know, little, uh, we don't often see him referred to as anything but Ratface. In fact, we almost never do. Uh, So, you know, cute little, hey, we've got a cute little history together. I've got your name and I'm going to use it when I'm mad at you. It's basically a middle name situation. It's very cute. So Catherine doesn't think, or Catherine is surprised to find that the Callowins are racist, which seems yep. to be forgetting her roots. And then later, she has a talk with everyone, and then she raises her cup and says, to the 15th, Nock laughs and says, we march west once more in Mthethwa. Mithe- in He's quoting something. And everyone echoes, including Catherine, waging that same old war. And like I get legion traditions and all, but Catherine just embraces the pracy imperial quote, we march west once more, waging that same old war. The war against her people and her way of life, I remind you. Mm -hmm. And then she says it's just as well, none of us had spoken the rest of the famous verse. Onward to the fields of Callow, Swift death and graves shallow, which I would think would be the best part of it for a real Callowin. Of course, she's half Jora, so right. Come on, cat. <laughs> she's been officially involved in praise for almost no time, and she's already here. But speaking of almost no time, we also have almost no time left in this episode. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erotic Artists. We discuss. Wine. And women. And wonderful spy mistress. Wade in their blood. Hot
Guys, Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Nastily Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicallyguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was War by Less FM. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions? comments or contributions are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors email us at the long price at gmail.com if you'd like to materially support our work find our patreon at patreon.com pgtee join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art or even join a pgte inspired rpg we implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, Chapter 2, Demand! When an orc and a human love each other very much. What if I was an orc and you were a human and we kissed and we were both girls?